You may have noticed uh, in your time here at Calvary that we like talking about the end times. Are, these are the times that we believe we truly are living in these days. You know, when we look at the world around us and you look at prophecy in the Bible, um, you know, it's all kind of lining up and telling us that this, these are the days that the Bible refers to as the last days. And we don't share this to, to scare people, but we really want us to be prepared uh, for what's to come and for the things that are going, around, going on around us. And one of the questions that I always hear uh, when we talk about the end times is what, what is our role in this? As believers and followers of Christ, what is our role? And I think the Apostle Paul answers that question pretty well in this passage that we're going to study today. So how we can be prepared and then what do we do with that information as we go forward? And so we will uh, talk about that in just a moment. Um, but as, before we jump into the text, just a quick introduction to uh, kind of what's going on as this letter is being written. Uh, the Apostle Paul is in prison. Um, he's been arrested, and he is uh, about to face what he feels is, is death, and he's correct in this instance. He's been in jail many times before. He's been persecuted, beaten, stoned nearly to death uh, multiple times, but he knows that this is kind of the last, the end of the road for him. This is the last time, and so he sits down to pen this letter to Timothy. Uh, Timothy is a guy that he had been discipling uh, most of his life, and so these are kind of the final thoughts of Timothy, or of Paul. So he writes these down to Timothy as kind of his final thoughts. So this letter is also written to the church. It's written to believers. And so it's important for us to note that as we walk through this text today, that Paul is talking about things you will see in the church in the last days. And so that's referred to as the apostasy. And so throughout scripture, you hear this, of this coming apostasy. And what that means is a deliberate turning of our back away from the truth. A deliberate turning of our back away from the truth. And again, this is written to the church. And so we have to be mindful that this isn't something that we're facing just culturally around us, but these thoughts will permeate the very church in which we worship. And so he's writing these things to prepare us and saying, this is what we need to look for. In fact, uh, the book of Jude, it is one chapter tucked in right before the book of Revelation. And Jude says this, and it sums up today's teaching pretty well in two verses. Jude chapter one, verse 17 through 19, he says, but, but you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, are worldly-minded, and are devoid of spirit. And so he says the apostasy of the church or the turning away from the truth will be marked by these things. And the one that really sticks out to me is he says they'll be devoid of the spirit, they will acknowledge that God exists, but the Spirit is not in them. They deny the Spirit. They deny the power of God. And we'll talk about that a little bit today. And so this chapter, the, the, the stuff we'll be studying today, is broken up into three parts. The first section here, Paul lays out the characteristics of the apostasy. He said, here are the things that you're going to see permeate the church, that you need to be on the watch out for. These are the things that are going to come into the church that we need to be mindful of. So starting in chapter 3, verse 1, he says this. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Now, the word difficult there translate, translates literally to the word savage. And we see this word only used one other time in the New Testament. And that's in the book of Matthew chapter 8. And it's referring to two demon-possessed people that the text says were so violent that nobody could go around them. You couldn't get by them. They were guarding a path and would let nobody around and so Paul is making reference to this, saying the last days will be so savage or so difficult, it will be marked by an increase of demonic activity, and it will be very savage or difficult 
to deal with. So I think we're going to see an increase in demonic activity as we continue through these last days. And again, you'll see that pop up in the text today. So Paul goes on here to list 19 characteristics that will mark the apostasy. And we're going to stop and kind of talk through these as we go through. But starting in verse 2, he says this, for men will be lovers of self. Men will be lovers of self. And I think that that one kind of sums up the rest of these that we'll talk about today is that all of these things that we'll see stem from the love of ourself. And I think that all of us would acknowledge today that in our culture around us, and even creeping into the church around us, you see a true love for self. We see it in social media. You see it in the media, when it's all about us and how we build ourselves up, but it's all about ourselves. And so we're seeing this continued act of building ourselves up. And number one on your outline is this. The last day's apostasy will be characterized by a love of self. And when we elevate ourselves above God, obedience to God and serving others becomes impossible because I become the most important thing in my life. It's no longer about God. It's no longer about people, but it's all about me. And sadly, this starts with the church. When we look at the church around us, you start seeing things like messages built around me. How can you live your best life? How can you do these things? And it's all about how I feel. You see it in modern worship. When you look at worship songs these days, a lot of them are built around how God makes me feel, what you do for me. It's no longer about our praise and worship of God. And so we see this idea of self creeping into the church when Paul says right here, the last day's church will be defined by a love for ourself. And you're starting to see that around us. When we lose track of the word of God, that's what starts to creep into the church. And so you're going to see these two themes throughout scripture today as we talk through this letter. The idea of the apostasy or turning away from God and then the tension of the word of God and how the word of God is necessary to overcome the apostasy and how it's needed to overcome these things. And so we're going to see that throughout the text today. But continuing on in verse two, it says they will be lovers of money. And again, that sums up our culture pretty well. You know, money makes people do absolutely crazy things. It tears relationships apart. It tears families apart. It tears businesses apart. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, Paul wrote this. He said, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Money itself is not bad, but the love of money is the root of all evil. And so when we start focusing on money and getting ahead, we start to make very bad decisions. And again, many of us have seen that play out in our own lives. Verse two, it continues on. He says, they will be boastful. They will be arrogant. They will be revelers. That word means they'll have abusive speech. Our words have power. You know, the things that we say stick with people. As a parent, you know, I'm accountable towards my words towards my kids. I'm I'm accountable towards the words towards my spouse, the things that I say. And it's the same for all of us in here. We're accountable for the words that leave our mouth. Are we going to have abusive speech? or speech that's building people up. You see, a kid can only hear that you're a bad kid or you're being bad so many times before they start to truly believe it. And so our words carry that power. Are we being abusive with our speech? And again, the last day's church has said they'll be marked by abusive speech. We tell our kids all the time that, you know, when they come home and say, well, so-and-so was making fun of me today. You know, bullying at its root is centered in self, obviously, but it's centered in my need or my insecurity to build myself up by tearing other people down. Okay, and so that's what we have to watch out for, being abusive in our speech. Am I tearing other people down to make myself feel better about something that I'm insecure about in my own life? 
Verse two, it goes on to say, they will be disobedient to parents. So all the parents before you say amen about that one. I know we see that. We see that relationship of parent-child kind of, uh, it's, it's much more strained today than I would say it was before. But I think it's way deeper than what it says there on the surface. I think Paul's referring to the complete erosion of the foundation of the family. And again, something you see playing out right around us. And I think this is one of the greatest signs of our time is the difference between family today than it was even you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. But you go back, the priority that family had with one another and what it looks like today. You see, family is a theme throughout scripture, right? So we are the bride of Christ. You know, we have brothers and sisters in Christ, okay? He is our heavenly father, we are his children. You see this theme of family all throughout scripture. And Satan will stop at nothing to destroy it. He'll stop at nothing to destroy that. It's the very foundation of who we are. And we're gonna talk more about that in just a moment. But in verse two, he goes on to say, they'll be ungrateful. We live in the age of entitlement. Entitlement breeds expectation and ungratefulness. We stop being grateful for the things we have. We stop being thankful for the things God has done for us. In Hebrews 13, 15, Paul says, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of the lips that give thanks to his name. Continually offer up. And I love the fact that he puts a sacrifice of praise. Because as we hear today, you know, times are going to get more and more difficult. It's going to take sacrifice at times to praise. It's going to be sacrificial for us to step back and say, thank you for what you've done for me during those difficult times. But he says, continually offer up a sacrificial, a sacrifice of praise to God. Continuing on in verse two, he says, they'll be unholy. And it goes back to that verse in Jude we talked about where it says they're devoid of spirit. They'll be wicked. The spirit won't even be in them. And then in verse three, he goes on to say, they'll be unloving. I think it's important to unpack this one because in the Greek, there are actually four words that refer to love in the Greek language. And in the English language, we have one word, and that's love. So if I say I love pizza and I love my wife, hopefully I love my wife more than I love pizza. (laughs) But love is the word that we have to describe it. In the Greek, they give us four words that describe love. So there is agape love, which is the love that God has for us, which is unconditional. Nothing we can do can break the love that God has for us. There is phileo love, that is brotherly love. There is eros, and that is um, where we get the word erotic or sensual love between a husband and wife. And then in this section, Paul is talking about the fourth type of love, and that is storge love. And when he says the, the church in the last days will be marked by a lack of storge love, he's saying the church will be marked by a lack of natural affection. That's the love between a parent and a child. So when you look at storge love, when you have had kids and you see that kid and you hold that kid for the first time, you have that overwhelming sense of I'll do anything to protect you, I'll do anything to provide for you. That's that natural affection that he's talking about. He says the last day's church will be marked by a lack of natural affection. Again, when you tie that back to Satan's plan to tear down the family and erode that, you start seeing that play out in the church. You're seeing it out in, in, in the world around us with our support of, of convenience over our responsibility as parents. You see it tie back to things like, let me ask a rhetorical question for you guys. You don't have to answer, raise your hands here. But how many of you guys' family dynamics are completely different now than they were two years ago? We faced one of the worst, most tense elections uh, ever. You know, if you voted for this guy, I won't talk to you. If you voted for this guy, I won't talk to you. You have 
the, the virus that we're dealing with. You have vaccinated versus unvaccinated people that you're not welcome in my house if you are. You're not welcome in my house if you aren't. Satan is using these things around us to completely erode the foundation of the family. And I think a lot of us can look at our lives and look at our families and say, yep, it looks completely different now than it did just two years before all of this started. So there'll be a lack of natural affection is a mark of the last day's church. Continuing on in verse three, it says they'll be irreconcilable. They'll be unforgiving. unforgiving. When we don't deal with, with things that we need to forgive for, bitterness takes root and bitterness grows up and it sprouts up in our lives and it destroys. We have to forgive. Some of us today have people that we need to leave here and forgive for things that have been done to us. You see, the Lord's Prayer says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. The idea is that we have been forgiven, so in turn, we go out and forgive. But he says the last day's church will be irreconcilable. They'll be unforgiving. Continuing in verse 3, it says, there'll be malicious gossips. Now, the church doesn't deal with gossip, right? We don't have to worry about that one. Tell you, this is one that we hear about probably the most these days. And let me see if this sounds familiar. Hey, guys, we need to pray for Karen because let me tell you all of her dirt and what she's going through. We try and like spiritualize our gossip, right? We try and make, make it sound good because, you know, we're praying for her. It's a good thing. But here's what's interesting. When you take the root word for malicious gossip, the word in the Greek is actually diabolos, which is the word where we derive the word devil. Devil. Devil means false accuser or prone to slander. So the idea Paul is saying here is that when we choose to slander and gossip other people, you are literally doing the work of the devil. You're literally doing his work for him. He doesn't need to do it. He just sits back and watches, tear each other down because he is the great deceiver. He is the false accuser. He is the one who wants to slander. Paul gives us a great verse in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, where he says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of our mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. Are your words beneficial to the people you're speaking them to? Are your words beneficial to the people you're speaking them to? Verse three, goes on and says, they'll be without self-control. Now, again, if they're unholy, if they're without the spirit, self-control is a fruit of the spirit, so they're not gonna have fruits of the spirit. Therefore, they will not have self-control. Verse three goes on to say they will be brutal. They will be haters of good. So they don't just do bad things, but they actually despise things that are good. They will actually hate those things. And again, we see it everywhere now where Christians have been kind of pushed on the outskirts and we're now the bad guys, right? They hate what's good. They hate what's good. They hate what we stand for. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. In verse four, it says they will be treacherous or marked by betrayal. They'll be reckless, conceited. They'll be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. And I think this last ver- verse sums it up perfectly in the, in, when it's all about myself. You know, I might believe that God exists, but I don't believe that God has power over me. And so we see this play out in our lives when we say, I believe that God exists, but I'm not worried about things like heaven or hell. I'm not worried about things like conviction and sin and things like that, because that that doesn't really apply to me. God's, God's good, but he has no power over my life. On your outline, I want you to write this down. The last days will be marked by unbelieving believers. The last days will be marked by unbelieving believers. They say they believe, but they don't really believe. And this mindset is prevalent during the Laodicean church age. If you guys were here with us during our Revelation study, 
The first three chapters of Revelation, there are seven letters written to seven churches. Each letter or each church represents a different era of the church age from the time of Christ through when he will return. And uh, we believe that we are in the last days, and that is the, the Laodicean church age. If, you haven't, if, I'm, if I've lost you completely, go check out our Revelation study. It's amazing. But the seventh letter represents the Laodicean church, and this is the church that is centered around self. So Laodicea literally translates to, we get our, we get our ter- two words, laity and diocese, from this word, which means the rule of the people. So the last day's church will be ruled by the people. The idea is that Jesus has been completely pushed out of the church, and we now run the show. And so Jesus isn't even in the building anymore. In fact, you see it play out again in Revelation chapter 3. It says, Behold, I stand, this is Jesus, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. So it stands out to me that Jesus is, A, on the outside knocking and trying to get in, and B, he says, If anyone hears, if, and I think that's a big if, open the door and I will come in. The idea is that not many will answer the door. And so we see this again playing out around us. And Paul continues in chapter 3, verse 5. He says, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, then he says, avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down by sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. I find it interesting here that Paul doesn't say go out and, and evangelize, go out and try and reach them, go, go to where they're at, bring them into your home, you know, he's build a relationship with them. He says, completely avoid these people. He goes, they have one goal, and that's to deceive. They want to get into your home. You know, what are we letting into our home? They want to get into your home. They want to deceive. They want to tear you down. They want to erode all of this stuff away. And he says, completely avoid those people. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, he says, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. So we have to be careful. Who are we letting speak into our lives? Who are we letting into our homes? And this begins the second section of the letter from the Apostle Paul here, where he talks about the strategy of the deceiver. So we've learned kind of what to watch out for, but now here's how the devil plans to do it. This is how he wants to pull it off. So in the outline, chapter one, it says, the evil one will prey on the weak. The evil one will prey on the weak. It said, among those are those who entered the households and captivate weak Women, I think the use of women there when it says enter the house was a cultural thing back then. Women were in the home most of the time. But also speaks to men needing to be the spiritual leader of the household so this stuff is not allowed into your home. You're, you're building your wife up. You're building your family up. But it says they will prey on the weak. And as we talk about through the rest of this section, we're gonna talk about the importance of being grounded in the word of God. And that's how we strengthen ourselves spiritually so we're not one of the weak that will fall prey to deception. And then it says they'll never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. The idea is they can never make the full jump to belief and maturity in Christ because they were allowing these things to creep into their lives. They can never truly buy in. Moving on in uh, chapter three, verse eight, it says, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also will oppose the truth. Men of depraved mind, rejected in regard of the faith, but they will not make further progress for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Janus's and Jambres' folly was also. So in the book of Exodus, God calls Moses to go to Egypt and deliver the Israelites from Egyptian captivity. And so he goes. When he gets there, he performs all these miracles, right? And so God uses Moses to do these things, and Aaron was there with him. Um, and Janus and Jambres were the two magicians, that, if you know the story, they were magicians that worked for Pharaoh. They were kind of able to replicate what Moses was doing. 
So for example, in chapter seven, it says they threw down a rod and it turned to a serpent. And it says the magicians did the same thing. They took their rods, threw them on the ground, and they turned to serpents. But then it says that Aaron and Moses' rod eats the other two serpents. So the idea is that they can match what God is doing on the surface, but God will ultimately have the last word. And so I think Paul puts this in here for a couple of reasons. One is to know that God will have the last word, but number two on your outline is the evil one will perform signs and wonders. The evil one will perform signs and wonders. Again, remember, he is the great counterfeiter. He's the great, you know, he's the deceiver. He's going to do whatever he can to make you believe that this is from God, but really it's from him. But there was eventually a time where Janus and, Janus and Jambres could not match what God was doing through Moses. He couldn't match what God was doing. They turned to Pharaoh and said, we can't do that. Their God is the true God. And just like that, it would be the way for the Antichrist. And we see this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. Paul is writing, he's referring to the Antichrist in the last days when he says, that is, the one who's coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders. Paul wants us to know it's going to look very good on the surface, but you gotta dig deep. You gotta be grounded. You can't be weak. You have to be solid in the word and know where these signs and wonders are coming from. You have to be prepared. Continuing on in verse 10, he says, now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, underline persecutions and sufferings. Such as happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, with persecutions I endured. And out of them the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who have desired to live godly in Christ, Jesus, will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So on your outline number three, the evil one will increase persecution against the church. The evil one will increase persecution against the church. Now, persecution comes in many forms. I think in Western culture, um, we've been relatively, relatively spared from this for the most part. We face mostly, I would say, social persecution where a lot of us feel, you know, you're, you're, you're made fun of. We don't want to share our faith because we want to offend people and, you know, things like that. So socially, in fact, Peter refers to it in 1 Peter 4.4. 4, he says, uh, they are surprised, referring to the world, the Gentiles, they are surprised that you don't join in them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. And so we face that social persecution now. He says in the last days, it's going to get worse and worse and worse. I think you're starting to see that now, right? You're starting to see that play out a little more even in Western culture. In Eastern culture, you go to the Middle East, you can't even say the name of Jesus. They'll behead you, they'll throw you in jail. And so they face a much uh, stronger form of persecution when it comes to that. But again, that stuff's creeping creeping up on us here as well. In the book, The Extermination of Christianity, it was written about 25 years ago. They laid out five steps to persecution. And so when we talk about persecution being a tool of the enemy, here is what, here's how persecution plays out uh, for Christians. So it said, number one, the first step is this. You have to identify your target group. So Christians or the church would be the target group. Number two, the second step to exterminating Christianity would be to marginalize the target groups. You need to make them seem irrelevant. You need to make them seem irrelevant. Let me ask you guys, have you guys ever heard um, people say, you know, the Bible was written 2,000 years ago, so culturally it's irrelevant? You guys ever heard that before? You hear it in the church. You hear people talk about it all the time. Your faith, you know, 2,000 years ago, but it needs to be updated. You need to get with the times. We're moving forward, right? So they make you seem irrelevant. The third step is they vilify the target group. So if we speak out against sin, now we're bigots. You know, we can't do that. We're now the villains. We're now the bad guys. You can't, you can't say that stuff anymore. 
Number four, they pass laws against the beliefs or activities of the target group. So you're starting to see more and more of this. You're starting to see more and more of this, even in our society today, where laws are being passed that affect the way we worship, when we worship, how we worship. And then the fifth step is this. They begin enforcing these laws. And if we had a map, I would say it's right about where we're at. They start enforcing these laws. And so you're going to see things continuing to rapidly increase in the church, outside of the church, but persecution is going to pick up in the last days. I mean, who would have ever imagined that we live in a country where pastors are being arrested for holding church, for opening their doors? It's happening. Who would have ever imagined that people, based on their religious conviction, are having to choose, do I keep my job or do I quit my job? We're seeing it play out right here among us. Persecution is playing out right in front of us and it's going to continue to ramp up in the last days. So the first two sections of this are pretty heavy. Paul says, I want you to be prepared. Watch out for these things. Here's how it's gonna happen. You know the pieces of the puzzle. And then the third section, he says, this is the strategy to persevere. Here's how we overcome these things. It starts in verse 14. It says, you, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Paul tells Timothy to remember everything he's taught him. He's poured into him. He's invested in him. They've studied scripture together. He says, remember these things. That's called discipleship. Discipleship is how the church started. I share my faith. They take their faith. They share their faith. And it just permeated. Thousands upon thousands of people were led to Christ because people discipled one another. And they had a community to lean on. So on your outline, the first thing that we need to do to persevere is to remember that discipleship is a command. Discipleship is a command. Jesus, before he ascended into heaven, he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We should always have people spiritually feeding us and pouring into our lives. In turn, we need to be spiritually feeding and pouring into other people. That's how discipleship works. And we see it, the greatest example of that in scripture is Barnabas, Paul, and Timothy. So Barnabas, when, when Paul accepted Christ, he's blinded and he's sent to Damascus and it says that Barnabas is called by God to go meet Paul. And so he meets him there, Paul's healed, and it says that he pours his life into Paul over the next few years. They travel, they do missionary journeys together, but Barnabas pours into Paul's life. And then in turn, later on, Paul meets Timothy and starts pouring into his life, and so you see how this works, where you have one person pouring to another who's pouring into another, and it keeps kind of permeating from there. So on your outline, I have this. Ask yourself, who is my Barnabas, and then who is my Timothy? Who is the person that is pouring into your life that you said spiritually, I want you to speak into my life? And then who's the person that you then are in turn pouring your life, spiritually feeding in your life? So who is your Barnabas and who is your Timothy? Discipleship is a command. Verse 14 through the beginning of chapter four, it says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work, in chapter four, it says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, underline, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort, and with great patience and instruction. 
So number two, the second thing we need to do prepared is knowing that scripture is the basis of defending our faith. Knowing scripture is the basis for defending our faith. Our mission at Calvary is simple. Our mission statement says we are called to help people grow in their relationship with Jesus through the teaching of God's word. And so when Pastor Dan came here 25 years ago, he loves when I talk about him, so. When he came here 25 years ago, it was a simple thing. He was like, God called me to come here and teach the Bible. And I can't tell you how many people come to us every single week and they say, I've never heard the Bible taught that way. I've been in church my entire life. You know, not only, clap for that, yeah. It's, it's in reference to, we have a great pastor, but it's sad that people come here and say, I've never heard the Bible taught my entire life. But again, the last days will be noted by a church that won't teach the Bible. Scripture is the basis of defending our faith. We don't know scripture. We don't know the deception. You can't see through it. You can't weed through it. And we are dragged down with the deception. It's not a coincidence that in Ephesians 6, when Paul lays out the armor of God, you're given one weapon to attack. The sword of the spirit, the word of God, is your one weapon to attack. And in Hebrews... Paul says this, he said, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Our job is to teach the word, to memorize the word, to share the word, to let it go out and let the spirit use that how only the spirit can. But we need a life grounded in the word to defend ourselves. Continuing on in verse, uh, chapter four, verse two, he says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, then he says, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. So in your outline number three is we need to use the word to convict, to warn, and to encourage others. To convict, to warn, and encourage others. I don't know if you guys know this, but the word of God can be offensive. We don't like being told about our sin and what's wrong and how we need to be better and what we need to improve on. But it's pretty clear, he says, we need to use the word of God to convict. And the word of God convicts, it pierces, Right? In college, I had a professor, and I'm sure this wasn't unique to him, but one day he challenged us in a, in a pastoral ministry class. He said, it is better to offend someone into heaven than to love someone to hell. And that has stuck with me my entire life. I think there's a lot of us that sit in this room that we don't want to share our faith because we don't want to offend people. But it's better to offend people to heaven than to love people to hell. So we need to convict. We need to use the word to rebuke or to admonish and warn people. And I love that he ends with the last one. He says, to exhort to encourage or to build up people. And I think he ends with that for a reason. There's always a chance for restoration. We serve a gracious God who loves us and will always forgive us. We need to use the word to encourage. But before we move on, I think it's important to note that this comes with a warning. Paul says, do this with great patience and instruction. So when we convict, when we warn, when we encourage, we do this with great patience and instruction because I believe there are some people that love to go out and tell you what you're doing wrong in your life. And what that does is push people away. They want nothing to do with your God if that's what your God represents. So Paul says do it with great patience and instruction. You have to earn that right. Again, it goes back to discipleship, right? If you've earned that right, people can come into my life and say, hey man, here's what I see going on you need to be aware of. I can go into other people's lives and say, hey man, I see this playing out and I wanna warn you, this is what's coming. And it's difficult, but it's necessary. We to use the word to convict, to admonish, to warn, people and to encourage, but do it with great patience and instruction. Prayerfully consider your words before you speak them and you go speak to that person. Verse three and four, 
again, more relevant now than ever. Paul says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Again, more reason to be grounded in the word, to be grounded in the truth. But it says people in the last days, the last days church will be marked by turning away from that and saying things that will make you feel better rather than sharing the truth because we don't want to offend people. How can you have people here if we're offending people? But the charge is clear. Preach the word, not my words, not my opinion, not philosophy, but preach the word. The word of God will go out and do those things. In Psalm chapter one, it says this. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. I love that verse. Because it's a reminder that the word of God is our firm foundation. When we understand the word, we are planted firmly. We're not gonna be eroded. We'll stand against these things, and then we will bear fruit. We will bear fruit. Your life will bear fruit. So be like a tree firmly planted by the stream. Then in verse five, he closes with this. He says, but you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of the evangelists and fulfill your ministry. So number four in your outline is is simply this. He's saying to be watchful. In light of all of these things, watch out for these things because you'll see it playing out. You need to be watchful. That's what it means to be sober Mind you, he says, endure hardship. We talked about persecution. He goes, times will continue to get more difficult and continue to get worse. And so he says, endure hardship. Then I love this next one. He says, do the work of the evangelist. He says, look, Timothy, I know that you're not one of those guys that loves to go out there and tell people about your faith, but every single one of us in this room is called to do it. Do the work of the evangelist. Some people are gifted to do that. It's a spiritual gift, and it's just their passion. They seem to walk into any relationship and be able to, any situation, and talk about Jesus. It just comes so natural. And for some of us, it's more difficult. That doesn't neglect the fact that we are all called to do the work of an evangelist, share the gospel, talk about Jesus, and share it with those that need it. And then the last thing he says is fulfill your ministry. And I love this. He's saying, see it through. Don't give up. You're gonna face tough times. You're gonna face people mocking you. You're going to have days where you want to give up, but Paul says, don't give up, see it through. And so I I look at this text and I just, I'm grateful that we are a church that will always stand on the word of God. And And that will never change. Dan has told me personally that God will smite him the day he decides not to do that. So... We will always be a church family plant, uh, firmly planted in the word of God. And I think that for us, as we go forward, we need to remember that in our own lives, how does that play out? Are we taking time and seeking God in the word every day of our life? Are we prepared for these things because we know it's coming? Or are we gonna struggle because we're not firmly planted in the word of God? For some of us in this room here today, we haven't even taken the first step in giving our life to Christ. And that's the very first step and then growing from there. For some of us, we have taken that step, but we're not spending the time with God that we need to in preparation for the things that are going on around us. It's going to get more difficult. Some of you are facing very difficult decisions right now, and I wish it said that was it, but Paul says it's going to continue to get worse. 
And so we need to be prepared. We need to be built up in our faith. We need to be surrounded by community of supporters that can pray for, support each other, love each other during these times as it continues to get worse. Because who knows what the church looks like in five, 10 years in our own country? What's our ability to meet, to gather, to worship as we continue to go forward? None of us know what that looks like. And so it's important to be grounded in the word. Let's pray. Jesus, we're so grateful for uh, just your word, Father, just the, the way that you speak to us, you pour into us. And God, we just pray that as we leave this place today, that we don't leave and this falls on deaf ears, but God, that we carry it with us, that we carry the challenge to go out and reach our community, our, our offices, our families, our friends, to do the work of the evangelist, to disciple, Father, that in these times, we know it's going to get more difficult, but God, a life firmly planted in the word is a life that will stand strong in the face of adversity. And so God, I pray that you continue to equip and empower each one of us that as we go forward, we're sharing our faith. You're opening up doors for gospel conversations to take place in our lives that we can share that with other people who are facing the difficulties that we're facing as well. So God, I pray that you go before us this week. You continue to pour into us that everything we do is glorifying and honoring to you. Jesus, we love you. We're grateful for salvation. We're grateful for the hope that we have, even in times like this, because of you. We love you. It's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. You all have a great week. We will see you next Sunday.